we think podcasting our full radio show has been holding us back. Most podcasts aren't two hours long per show, and the constant resetting we do for radio might be turning off podcast listeners. Riley's Daily Digests have been going for years, so we're going to lengthen them and make them our official podcast starting September 1st. If you subscribe to the Daily Digest or full episode RSS feeds, please resubscribe to the main FTL podcast feed, which you can find at feeds.freetalklive.com. The other feeds rely on a third-party service, and though they'll continue, we can't be sure how long they'll stay online. If you still want the entire radio show, you can listen live every night from 7 to 10 Eastern at freetalklive.com. Full video archives are at video.freetalklive.com or tune into our 24-7 stream for the latest show at listen.freetalklive.com. FTL Amps will continue to receive the full radio show with no commercials via podcast through Patreon, so please join amps.freetalklive.com for just $5 a month. Here are the highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. Visit freetalklive.com for the full episode. When did you and Jody move up here for the Free State Project? 2007. 2007. Okay, 2000. And I hear her feeding you answers in the your producer <laughs> yeah. in the, that's, in the that's background. Really kind of- this is the kind of thing I would keep track of. Well, you know, if you're going to be part of a, if you're going to be a married couple, there's no sense in storing all of it in one brain. I right. mean, exactly. So you guys moved here. You're some of the earlier movers. 2007 is just a few years after the Free State Project chose New Hampshire. For listeners that don't know, uh, the Free State Project is a migration of libertarian, voluntarist, liberty-loving anarchist activists who are coming to one geographic area, in this case, a pretty small geographic area, and that's New Hampshire. You guys chose uh, Croydon, which is a small town. Yeah, it's Grafton County. Is that where it is? It's Sullivan County. Sullivan, okay. Not quite that far north. Uh, it's small town, population? Around 700. 700 people. That. And, yeah. you know, I know you've got a book that you've written about the 14th Amendment. I want to get into that coming up here. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that maybe heard something earlier this year about <laughs> yeah. Croydon. And you've got Democrats who've been crowing about this is the big defeat for the free staters, that Croydon was the big smackdown, uh, proving that the free staters have no political influence or strength here, even though, on the other hand, the Democrats are constantly complaining that the free staters have taken over the state house. So it's hard to really believe what they're saying, but they, they count this amongst their greatest victories. And... What happened, as I understand it, was you came to a town meeting, and in New Hampshire, town meetings are kind of where all the big decisions get made. Can you summarize for our listeners what is a town meeting and why do they matter? Because not everywhere has these things. They certainly didn't happen in Florida, where I come from. So what is a town meeting? And, and by the way, these don't happen in the cities in New Hampshire, only in the in the towns. And there's mostly towns. Right. So there's cities, and there's SB2 towns, and then there's towns, and we're just a town. Okay. Wait, there's what towns? SB2. It's a Senate Bill 2, and that is a way to – it was a bill that was put forth to let some towns take some of the power out of the hands of the people who attend the town meeting Mm -hmm. by setting up – you have to have a meeting beforehand and decide what will be on the ballot. But in a town meeting, like the one we have, the ones that a lot of towns have, uh, you get together to vote on what you're going to do. So the school district typically will have a warrant article that says, you know, shall the town appropriate $1.7 million to fund the schools and pay for tuitioning and whatever. Mm -hmm. So the rules are you can't change the subject. 
So you couldn't come in and say, oh, let's change that to say, shall the town allocate $1.7 million to build a swimming pool? You're not allowed to do that. Okay. What you can do is change any number. <laughs> so that's what I did. I suggested that instead of $1.7 million, we have 800000 as the number. Now, before and somebody gave, out there listening thinks, oh, that's a drastic cut, because it's about 50%. <laughs> When you did the the math on the 1.7 million and you divided that by the number of students going to the school, what did it come out to per student, what they were proposing? Well, it was actually the, the, that amount that I proposed. And what I proposed was $10,000 per student. And I said $10,000 per student should be enough. And I explained that, you know, there are lots of uh, other, like the, the state says it only costs $3,700 to educate a student. Right. And there are, you know, private schools that charge 9000 or less. There is VLAX, which is free. There are charter schools, which are also public schools, but they only get $7,500 from the state. So I basically said 10000 You can't make a serious argument that $10,000 isn't enough. But just to clarify, doing... they were proposing approximately $20,000 per student. Yeah. More. Yeah, more yeah. than that, yeah. actually. So but... you came in and said... How about 10? It's still more than what everybody else is spending, even local private schools. And you proposed this at this meeting. It was the first time this had come up, right? Like you didn't have anything that you didn't send out a mailer to households or anything. You just. Right. Luckily, they haven't burned you from house and home at this point, Ian, because a lot of the status in town rose up and they were livid after they found out that you had successfully persuaded the people at the town meeting to vote at said town meeting to reduce the school budget from roughly uh, $1.7 million to around eight or $900,000. Is that right? Yeah, 800000 But so I, I want to make a, a little correction to what you're saying, because this is one of the things that's misunderstood. Everybody talks about it as if I wanted to cut the budget. If you cut a budget, it means you basically just keep doing the same thing and start looking for things you can trim. And that's not, not what I was doing. I was doing two things. One, so I, I had handed out a pamphlet called Ransom or Budget, and I was trying to change the flow in which control went. Rather than saying, we're going to sit here, the district will come to us and make a demand, and we either basically you know, go along with the demand or we lose our home. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say instead, you know, that's a ransom. A budget is when we tell you what we think we can afford and what we want to pay, and then you make it work. So the idea was never that we will cut the budget by by taking the existing approach and just looking for things to drop. The idea was always to pick a number that was reasonable and clearly reasonable given what everybody else has been doing and for how much. Things we never hear from from politicians. Yeah, build from the ground up, figure out what it is we're trying to do. And the whole point of this, which has been totally lost in all the discussion, is they think, oh, this is just about money. It's not about money. It's about actually, and this this was in the pamphlet that I handed out, it's actually about forcing certain questions to actually be addressed, which are never addressed. Like Like what? Why are we doing doing this in the first place? What is the purpose of having tax-funded education? Right? Well, that's a great question. Nobody actually ever talks about that. Yeah. I've been asking the question recently, why does the Department of Education deserve any money when one in five children, or one in five uh, high school graduates are illiterate. Oh, it's higher than that. So it's 
It was 20% <laughs> uh, a year ago when I first uh, so learned I, of the topic. That's how you measure it, right? The, the, the mm-hmm. figure that's been stable for a long time is use this NAEP test, the National Assessment of Educational Process and Progress, and you um, look at essentially what percentage of kids are at the most basic level of proficiency and then proficiency and then, you know, high proficiency, whatever. And only 40% have reached basic proficiency. I'm always surprised that people haven't seen this, but Andrew Coulson, the late Andrew Coulson, put together a graph for Cato that showed that in index inflation, in index for inflation between 1970 and around 2010, spending per student tripled. And you look at the NAEP scores and they're absolutely flat. If anything, they've reduced. That's pretty clear, then, that more money does not equal any better performance. Yeah, Yeah, this is one of those situations where you simply do not get what you pay for. And Mm -hmm. didn't didn't John Taylor Ghetto point out something similar about, like, all this money is being dumped into education, and yet everybody's, you know, measurables are, you know, staying static or or getting worse? Yeah. So And so then there's a second graph that I produced, which is essentially it shows all the states and what they pay versus the scores they're getting. And the interesting things are there's no correlation. So the, the states that spend six thousand dollars get a, a, the same results more or less as the states that spend twenty, mm-hmm. right? And so and the and the thing is none of the states are actually succeeding according to what you would call a you know not even succeeding but not even failing. All states are failing. New Hampshire is failing a little less badly than most other states. So that's the second thing to notice is it, it apparently doesn't really matter what you spend. You spend 6000 you can spend 20000 you get the same result. But here's the one that, that really just blows my mind. If you plot every district in New Hampshire, you have a plot showing what they spent, in, in, in again, adjusted for inflation. You look at what they spent in 1998 before the Claremont decision, and you look at what they're spending now, every district. You can draw a line, a horizontal line there where every district in 1998 is below it, except Waterville Valley, which is just an anomaly. And every district in 2020 is above it, which means every district now is a rich district in terms of spending. Hmm. Every single one. There is no district that isn't spending more than the, the richest, most you know, favored, wealthiest districts were spending before. Ian Underwood is with us here. So you had a tremendous success at this town meeting. Can you recall what was the percentage of the meeting that actually voted for your proposal to move forward with a roughly eight or nine hundred thousand dollar budget for the school board as opposed to their proposed one point seven million? Well, the final vote, there were around 40 something people at the meeting. Mm-hmm. The final vote was 24, so a smaller budget and, uh, 20, and 14 against. Okay. Ransom. Is that a typical so, sized turnout for those town meetings or lower or is, higher? Okay. It is absolutely typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went back and looked at, we have, you know, the minutes and, and reports in the last several meetings and it is absolutely typical. So it's being reported as nobody showed up, but mm-hmm. it's, it's right there solidly in the middle. Yeah, the the leftist uh, media is reporting it as though you guys were lying in wait for a low attendance meeting, and then you struck. But that's not at all what <laughs> I have, what happened. I've been accused of making it snow. <laughs> wow, that's a neat superpower. That's a cool power, yeah. yeah. All right, know, so you had this tremendous victory. It started getting uh, talked about in the Liberty Circles here in New Hampshire. It was getting promoted like, wow, look at this tremendous uh, win for freedom in Croydon. Congratulations. Everybody's patting each other on the back. And then all of a sudden, the uh, the status rallied the troops 
and they got the word out big time, and they 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 did their digging through whatever code uh, statutes, and they found some kind of statute that allowed them to call for a recall, basically, or call for a redo. Uh, what happened there? So that the the statute says it's a you can have a special meeting to raise more money, and that's what they did. So they said we need more money. Let's have a special meeting. They uh, came to the school board. They set a date. And then it the race was on, and it was just a matter of could they convince enough people to go. And so the, the law itself is written in a, a kind of odd way. And it says that if you're going to have this meeting, the results of the meeting don't count unless 50% of the registered voters in the town cast ballots, which raises the question, well, how do you get that 50% number? What really happened is there was, you know, I hate to use the word, but there was just a, a boatload of uh, misinformation mm-hmm. where they simply fall, they, they just misstated the positions that the school board. Was That's a taking. nice way of saying lied about. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Lied about is, is more accurate. Um, well, what were some like, of the things they were saying? Because they were trying to rile, uh, rile the town up, uh, get the townspeople to turn against this decision and get them out to this special election. So how were they right. persuading them? So they were so one of the things is we have a, a little building we call Little Red, which is a it's characterized as a single room, a one room schoolhouse, but it isn't really. And they were claiming that the school board wanted to shut it down. So the school board, by the way, didn't didn't ask for this. They were suddenly put on the spot. They're like, well, we have eight hundred thousand. We better figure out what we can do for that, which is exactly what they should have been doing. Mm-hmm. So right. they said, well, the people in the town were like or the, the stand up recording people were like, they're going to close that school. And they weren't. They were explicitly were saying we're going to just use it in a different way. They were told that there would be deficit spending required. And the school board was like, well, there won't be. There might be some deficit spending required for special ed, but we can do this for, you know, we can do regular education for the budget that you gave us. They were told um, that taxes would go up. Which is amazing because wow. fact, spending was going to go down. If we don't spend so more were, money, we'll have to pay yeah. more taxes. <laughs> right. If if we spend less money, taxes are going to go up, and then people won't want to move here because derp, people derp, hate derp. to live in low tax towns. They had to turn out more than fifty percent of the town's voting population in order to have whatever happened, whatever the vote was at this meeting, count. Is that correct? Did I understand you correctly on that? <laughs> Yes, that's correct. Uh, they actually had to cast ballots. I mean, they would count the ballots, and if the total number of ballots, yes and no, was greater than that number, which started out at 283, um, then if it was less than that, then it just wouldn't count. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be binding. It wouldn't matter what the result was. And um, there were there's only you said there's only 700 people in the town, excluding children who obviously can't vote there's probably several hundred registered voters uh, i would guess right five or six hundred something like that i'm just guessing were, it was uh five yeah it was uh 283 times two so it's 565 okay. registered voters at the time by the end of all this it was closer to 600 something because they were but, registering people to vote who uh, had never yeah. registered to vote so they could bring yeah. as many people out as possible and only the new registers uh, not right. only, but the new registered people were the ones who heard about this camp through the campaign. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. Correct. And so one of the wrinkles there is the the number of registered voters went up, but that 583, the official number, didn't go up. So now, uh, you know, it was 
283, sorry. It, um, they, they still only needed 283, even though they had 70. To but that said, votes. they did turn, apparently, uh, what was it, over 300 came out to Three, vote? Yeah, 377 to wow. two final vote. So and they would have gotten it. So, they would have gotten it. They would have gotten it, clearly. But yeah. what's interesting is that's being reported as, like, the whole town wanted it. And what we did, we sent out a single mailer. And that mailer basically said, look, we're going to, you know, the school board's going to keep the school open. Your taxes will go down. There won't be any deficit spending. Just laid out essentially what the school board had been saying and said, if you if you like your budget, you can keep it. Just stay home. So the final, I mean, essentially the people who voted no didn't show up and vote no because mm-hmm. that would have just helped their cause. They stood home. So 40% of the voters, this is really, you know, 377 to 300, not 377 to 2. Yeah, and of course, the the media who's been reporting this has been dancing on the grave saying, oh, look, only two people, only Ian Underwood and his wife showed up, the only free staters, they're there voting against this, and everybody else in town came to show their support, and and they don't report the fact that you were encouraging your supporters and the supporters of the, the lower budget to just stay home. In hindsight, do you think that was the right approach? Um, in hindsight, uh, I, I think it would have been better to have those people show up and simply not take ballots and make everybody and make the people who wanted to take their money actually look at them while they did it. To me, the sad thing was that in all the coverage, if you look at all the coverage, there were essentially three people in town who were actually trying to talk about education. And that was me. My wife, Jody, who was on the school board and mm-hmm. second school board member. Everybody else was talking about things like sports and socialization and are we going to have, are you going to pick up our kids on Wait, the bus what? and where are we going to put them while we go out and work? Sports? The, the, the fringe benefits all. of public education, yeah. if you right. will, if right. you even want to call them that. He's talking uh, about. You know. See, no one can play soccer or football unless there's a government school around. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. right. People just couldn't possibly come together on their own to organize a game right. or a league or something Kids like that. Kids certainly yeah, can't I, learn I, to socialize around adults and like other families. It's totally impossible. They have to go to public school for these things. Yeah, I remember when you had to do like fundraisers if you wanted to do like, uh, like you know, have a football team or something like that like they would send the football players out and have them sell coupon books and things like that to raise the funds right to raise the funds for your extracurricular activities now they're just pointing guns at taxpayers instead so it's a lot easier that way it Uh, is um it is a lot easier. Do you think um, that, Ian, do you think this is going to come to a rematch uh, coming up at the next town meeting? Are you expecting a big push on both sides for a unusually large turnout? Do you think people are going to forget about it by then? Uh, what, what's your prediction? My prediction is that the people who have been mobilized are going to stay mobilized. They're mm-hmm. already about to have a big celebratory picnic. You know, they're like, we have to make sure this never happens again. So I think that it isn't going to happen necessarily in Croydon. And also one of the lessons was that a lot of the people who didn't show up didn't show up because they were feeling intimidated. You know, the Mm -hmm. the people calling them up were, you know, essentially yelling at them for not supporting what they wanted. So I don't think I don't think this is going to happen in Croydon. My hope is, though, that other towns will see that it is possible and will be better prepared. Right. You know, I mean, in our case, it, looking back, I mean, if I could change one thing, it would be this. The fact that I made this proposal actually is what ended up sinking it. 
because it became a personal referendum on free staters. Mm. If I had had the foresight to have somebody else in town, you know, essentially somebody who had no, you know, perceived axe to grind, just stand up and make the same proposal, we would have gotten the same vote, and it would not have become that kind of contest. Is it correct to say that you guys are some of the founding members of Bardo Farm? Yes, we are. We all we own it with Neil and Emily Smith, but they do all the work. <laughs> and it must be a lot of work because you guys, uh, Bardo Farm is at all of the events. It's, yes. It's at uh, every, uh, what do they call them, the market days that yep. happen across the state where people trade and buy and sell various different homemade kind of craft items and foods and things like that. Uh, can you just mention real fast what is Bardo Farm? What was the vision there and, and how's it been going? Um, the vision was was effectively to be more of a, a school thing, but the farm itself is is really it started out. Um, we're trying to find the right words for this, but uh, one of the things they started doing was getting stuff that would just get thrown away, actually doing something useful with it, feeding it to pigs, and then mm-hmm. using what comes back out of the pigs as to improve the soil. And so they're really about you know cutting down on waste and making awesome food. Um, you know, the, and their tagline is "Happy animals taste better." So nice, they sure they, do. They try to keep the animals happy. <laughs> yeah, we've got some Bardo meats here in the the freezer right now. I think I'm, you do too, Captain. I right? do. Yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan. Whenever Bardo is at the market days, I'm always buying stuff. Uh, Emily, you know, knows me, and uh, I'm trying to remember the other guy that shows up on occasion. He's got like initial. Oh no, it's Duck. That's the other guy. Duck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Bardo yep. meats do not last that long in my freezer. That I, that's why I don't have any. <laughs> So yeah, it's cool because yeah. it's fe- it's really literally feeding uh, the freedom community on, in a lot of ways. So well, and it's cool. it's that whole like community building thing, right? There is a mm-hmm. a resource that has been part of the folks who love freedom, part of their community. They built a thing, and they have a product that you know they are trading with other freedom loving people. And I think that is really a huge important part of what's going on here in New Hampshire. That community building. Yeah. It is. And part of that community building, by the way, is, I mean, we have people who come by and we will show them how to do things. We'll show them how to harvest the chicken. We'll show them how to fence in pigs or raise animals or whatever. I mean, it's not just about providing the food, but sort of the, the bigger vision is to get people to produce their own food, to rely on themselves more. Did you all see in Croydon a reduction, uh, kind of a permanent uh, reduction in the amount of students there? After COVID? It's a small town, so statistically not much has happened. We have seen some people who are now interested in uh, going to the kind of micro schools that the school board was proposing using or learning co-ops or just uh, withdrawing their students. Uh, it's Again, it's, it's hard to say anything statistically significant in a town with that small uh, a sample size. We do know that um, we have friends who are... We like, never shut our schools. We didn't require masks. Right, yeah. Um, Jody wanted to go ahead and restate what she said because she, I can kind of hear her, but yeah, we did not shut our school down and we did not require math. Wow, Um, okay, that's awesome. It's great. Yeah, it was, you know, we it was very much uh, business as usual for us, but I do know that there is uh, across the state at least a lot of people, as you said, are having seen what's going on have decided that maybe that's not the best thing for their kids. Right. And there's also um, something else that's been interesting. And thank you, Bad Slave, for the call tonight. Uh, something else that's been developing in just the last, I think, 
year or so in New Hampshire was they passed something called education savings accounts Mm -hmm. at the state level. And that, as I understand it, has allowed parents. Uh, th- there's a certain income requirement that you have to you have to be below basically to take advantage of it. Um, but has allowed a lot of parents. In fact, they filled the program as as I'm as I've heard. Uh, allowed parents to essentially indicate to the state that they're going to be taking care of their own education with kids. Maybe take them to a private school or doing homeschooling or unschooling, and they basically get cut a check from this education savings account program. Uh, to cover the costs, or there, as much as possible, yeah. up to a certain amount of thousand dollars, uh, thousands of dollars per year. Is, are you aware of that uh, program? And can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I'm aware of the program. Um, I believe the amount is some percentage of the adequacy money, which is around thirty-seven hundred dollars per mm-hmm. student. And the idea is, you know, that the money follows the student, which is not actually true. Um, there are some. There are some. I personally have some problems with it, but you know the people who are promoting it are saying, "Look, anything we can do to get kids to get out of the public schools is a good thing," and you know I, I'm on board with that. It's depressing how much, how little the discussion about this has been about education. And you know we're going to talk about 14, but I have, you know, a bunch of books coming out. Three of those are about education, and that really has to do with how do you deal with this discussion. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with being much clearer about what we mean by fairness. Yeah, it um, sounded uh, anyway. it sounded for a moment like uh, you were going to give me some pushback on uh, the affordability of uh, of the education that people wanted, uh, but we kind of headed into a commercial break. Oh, I mean, the affordability, you know, so one of the things, and I would like to get this out. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me was um, in the pamphlet and in, you know, at meetings where I spoke, I said, look, we, we we need to actually figure out what it is we're trying to do because otherwise we can only do we can only succeed by accident. And so, for lack of a better idea, you know, I'm just quoting the Supreme Court from the state Supreme Court from 1998, saying that it's the state's responsibility to provide every educable child with the opportunity to get the knowledge and learning necessary to participate intelligently in the economic, political, and social systems of free government. And Regardless of how they arrived at that, you could take that as a starting point. And if you do that, the system we have would would look very, very much different than the system that we have now. And so what was funny was, you know, immediately, again, people are like, that's just a crazy free stater idea. That's just, it's anti-social, it's anti-kid, it's anti-everything. And it's like, it's, it's the... It's the state Supreme Court from 20 years ago. You know, do you think it was infiltrated by free staters? Right. What do you think happened there? But it's just... Um, so I, I've actually taken the position that if we just took that sentence seriously, we would be able, we would get a much better educational result and we would pay a lot less. So that is sort of the point that I've been trying to make, really, if you sum it up in one small sentence, is that we can't get a better education for kids by spending more, but we might be able to do it by spending less. And that is the message that totally got lost. What is the 14th Amendment? Can you uh, recap for listeners yeah. that may not be familiar? Yeah. So the, the 14th Amendment basically says um, the, the Bill of Rights, as written, as ratified, applies only to the federal government. So the Bill of Rights says that Congress can't make a bill restricting freedom of speech, but Massachusetts can. It says that Congress can't take your gun away, but New Hampshire can, right? It didn't apply to the states particularly. And so the 14th Amendment was like this uh, political miracle where 
Congress and the states got together, passed and ratified something saying we are going to give up some power, which is unbelievable in retrospect. Um, and the way they gave up power I was certainly don't the, believe Bill it. Rights, the Bill of Rights actually applies to the states too. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the great. But the first chance that it came up for the Supreme Court to rule on it, they completely just destroyed that by reinterpreting it to say, oh, when you're talking about the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States, by which Congress and all the state legislatures meant the Bill of Rights, they said, oh, that only applies, that means rights that were created because the United States exists, like the right to travel across the the state line without a passport, right? Which, Which was never under dispute. There would be no point in passing an amendment to say that. So they destroyed that. And so the result was many decades later, um, some Supreme Court justices decided, well, maybe we were a little too hasty. Maybe the state should have to, for instance, respect some aspects of freedom of speech. Well, how are we going to do this? Because we just destroyed the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But there's a second clause in the 14th Amendment which says everybody is entitled to due process under law. So they created an oxymoron called substantive due process, right? So if you have something that's going on, you separate it into substance, which is what you're doing, process, which is how you do it. And so substantive due process is the substance of the process, which is nothing, but that's okay. Because if you're a Supreme Court justice, you wave your hands and people just assume you know what you're doing. Hmm. Yeah, this this all sounds very, very confusing. It is, and it's supposed to be confusing. But the the basic idea is if you can then, if the court decides that some right is part of substantive due process, then it is incorporated against the state under the 14th Amendment. The rights in the Bill of Rights, because of the way this all happened, are sort of zombie rights. You know, a zombie is not all there. They're just sort of, you know, crawling around um, blindly. And that's that's sort of how rights are. And so... The idea is that the way that it, that it ate the first 10 is you start out with a fairly absolute right, and then the 14th Amendment dilutes the way the states have to deal with it, and then that becomes the de facto way that the federal government deals with it. And so your right to keep and bear arms says, well, you know, maybe you can have uh, a magazine with seven rounds but not 10, or you can have a pistol in your home but not an AR uh, it, at the rifle range, or it says, yeah, you know what, we – we can t- we can uh, search you at an airport without, you know, probable cause, without any kind of warrant for any reason at all, because you, we only we only like only certain parts of your right to privacy are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So I, I do want to make this point that the, there is a, a theme to these books. It's not a theme exactly, but it's it's the way they're written. Every one of these books started out as a talk that I gave, so it's somewhere between twenty and forty minutes. And the way they're written is similar to a book, a wonderful book called This is Water by David Foster Wallace. And so every page is like one sentence or a paragraph or an illustration. And so it is the idea of bare minimum books is to tell you in the, with the least amount of, you know, fooling around what it is you need to know about this topic. So you can read this in one sitting. Hmm. Um, and the idea is that it should be something which at first, actually does seem very complicated. And then at the end, you go, okay, that wasn't as complicated as I thought it was. I'm still angry about it, but at least now I understand it. 
Well, and I'm, so that's sort of the effect I want. Well, and I'm definitely interested in finding out because I've absolutely noticed that they say that we have all of these rights, but as far as I can tell, not a single one of them is actually defended. Well, exactly. And so, again, the, the, the state we're in now is that you can reduce the Bill of Rights to a single sentence, and it's this. You have the right to do anything that is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty unless there's a compelling government interest in preventing you from doing it. I did do the research, Captain, that you did not do before the show. Before I made a bold claim. claim. You made a bold claim, and I, I had to shoot it down. I've been um, fact-checked by the producer. Turns <laughs> out there are other people with beards that do podcasts. In of fact, uh, there was a what they claimed was a top ten list, but it only had seven items on it. Disqualified. So means we are number eight. I presume that means there are only seven beard-related podcasts out there, and and most of them don't seem to have websites, at least according to this list. Uh, but one of them d- did the number one show on that. Yeah, I got, list. I got a fat. Uh, I got a fact check that presumption. No, if you if you just like go to a, a podcatcher and mm-hmm. type in beard, you will find a lot of podcasts. Really? So yeah. Therefore, there are actually quite a few more than seven beard-based <laughs> podcasts. The beard quality of what we're about to do tonight, though, is sort of secondary. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to be specifically talking about beards. At least, you know, perhaps we'll mention it, or maybe we will. But like, it's not intended to be a a show about beards. It just yeah. so happens Darn that the near people coincidental. Yeah, that the people participating mm-hmm. in the show all happen to have, I'll say, large beards. However, the men on the Beardcaster, thebeardcaster.com, got to give them some credit here. Uh, you've got a fairly lengthy beard there, Captain, but the main, it looks like main host, he's got double your length on uh, on this one. Similar beard. That's what she said. He's got the same kind of thing <laughs> going on. It's just a lot longer. And he appears, to have, co- he appears to have co-hosts. I'd say they're maybe about the same yeah, length okay. there. Well, and, uh, and that's one of the things. If I could get someone to challenge us in beardiness, then I would like... I would pull out the braids mm-hmm. just to, to, to fluff it out exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and he's got other people with some pretty fancy looking beards as well. So, uh, well, you know, you guys got... coming back there a little bit, you know, yeah, I've always got something going on. <laughs> looking look a never... little, little closer to search. Usually I have to go to, uh, to jail to actually let the thing <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. To get yeah. any decent yeah. girth on it. Yeah. Do you got a beard, dude? Uh, not a big one. I mean, but I do have it's, facial hair. It's coming in. There is, uh, I guess right. technically I, it's a beard. I was, I was... I was just going to say I'd take third, third chair on the bearded crew here for a minute. I, I always kind of imagined you having a beard. I, <laughs> I can't know? imagine you Same. not having one, actually, yeah. Major. There you go. There you go. Arr. Anyway, um, evidently there's an E. coli outbreak that supposedly came from Wendy's in four different states. Wait, E. coli, and- is that the electronic version of coli? Yeah, okay. <laughs> e. coli? If, if, if you can figure out a way to plug in ro- romaine lettuce, I'll go with that. The Apple version would be I. coli? Okay. Well, hey, you yeah. can plug just about anything into the wall you want to if you're if you're dead set on it. Well, doesn't here, go well, I, but I, you I, can. I got, I got to give you a little preface on this one. Irradiation, you know, the microwave oven, mm-hmm. that was the first way they learned to kill tumors was by irradiating them. Now, if you take a normal plate of food and irradiate it to it reaches, you know, like a boiling point, rats and cockroaches, the two ancient survivors, won't touch it. Right. Wow. You, you might as well be eating drywall paste. It takes all the nutrition right out of it. 
Wow. But uh, I smell Monsanto here because they have came up with a lettuce that will not wilt in the microwave. Why would you want to microwave that lettuce? That's terrifying. <laughs> these, these sandwich machines, you know. Also, what in God's name do they have to do to the lettuce to get it to not yeah, wilt right? in the microwave? Yeah. I have I have no idea, but this takes wax fruit to a whole new concept. No kidding. Yes, yeah, it sure does. Uh, in fact, uh, I think we were talking a little bit about food production with our guest, Ian Underwood, earlier. Mm-hmm. And I always like to point out that food production uh, has only been outside of the household for one, maybe two generations. Like, it yep, wasn't yep. that long ago that uh, every household participated in their own food production that is canning, growing, preserving, you know, uh, yep. butchering, you know, all that stuff, freezing, preserving in I other ways. Mm-hmm. You know, every grandma, every grandma I knew canned. Yep. Them old Polish women, you couldn't leave their table without being a fat man. They'd feed you till you about pop. <laughs> or the old Italian ones, they'd be like, oh, you like my cooking? Yeah, well, here's a whole plate full more. No, no, I'm full. What, you don't like my cooking? <laughs> Jones was sued, I believe, by two of the parents that the uh, Sandy Hook were one of the Sandy Hook kids that were killed. Uh, you know, however many years ago this was now, a decade or something like that, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and Jones said something ridiculous about it not being real. It's a big yeah. hoax or whatever. And and they sued him over this. It's like, how can you possibly, in a supposedly freedom of speech country, yeah. go after somebody for having a kooky conspiracy theory about something? I mean, that is so or, insane. And the jury ruled in their favor and ruled against Jones. Yeah, how on earth can it be a crime to be wrong about something? Yeah, like, it's or, nuts. I mean, I mean, like, uh, honestly, I think he was trying to figure out what was actually happening, and he just, he was wrong. Yeah. The thing is, if you're doing a show, I don't care if it's television, radio, it's live performance, whatever, yeah. the, the number one thing that you have to do is be engaging and or entertaining. Yeah. Right? So if you're not engaging, then you must be entertaining. And so I believe Alex Jones is far more entertaining than he is correct. Mm-hmm. Right now, other people are going to argue and they're going to have their opinions. He's right, right about, about that's some fine. things. He is absolutely, and he's been no. right about some things that I was like, "Wow, well, I guess uh, Alex Jones is right about that." Yeah. Right? you know. So yeah. like, but like being entertaining. Now, entertainment can mean a lot of things, right? It can mean using your imagination. Mm-hmm. It can mean uh, stating things the opposite of what they are, mm-hmm. or it can be making just making stuff up, right? F- pure fiction. Like I can right. say, Sandy Hook was not real. Oh my Uh-oh, God! Am Captain. I going to get sued? You might. Am I going to get sued now you by might. these two same MFers? This well, is a and, disturbing uh, precedent, and it's worth keeping in mind. Like, okay, news channels like Fox News, for example, they have no problem getting through court and saying, "What? We're an entertainment company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't have to report things as they are. We don't have to tell the truth because we're an entertainment." That's right, and that's exactly what they find in court. Whereas him. We, he is very clearly entertainment. Are people going to be able to sue Anthony Fauci for saying that, oh, no, the vaccine is 100% safe no, and effective? No, he's government. He's protected. Right. Uh, but the thing I wanted to bring up was the rumor I had heard about this lawsuit and the verdict in this case. So it was first there was a verdict of compensation of $4.5 million. And then there was the punitive verdict, which came out to, I think, $45 million at that point. Mil- but... There, the rumor is is that there's a law in Texas that limits punitive verdicts to only seven hundred fifty thousand per 
quote-unquote victim, which would mean that if that's true, and that's the rumor, I have not verified that it's true, that the $45 million is not required to be paid in Texas because this was a Texas case. Coming up, we're going to be making a change to our podcast. And we think that uh, there's How a theory. You? There's a theory that uh, podcasting a full two-hour-per-night radio show, because if you take a three-hour radio show and you cut out all the commercial breaks and you cut out all the news breaks, you get basically two hours of sure. talk content. And we feel like that may be holding our podcast back, just because there's a lot to listen to. And secondly, we're, we think that maybe like the the constant resetting that we have to do after every break just to bring new listeners up to speed, like, oh, we're talking to Ian Underwood. You know, I always have to tell that four times an hour if we have him on for an hour or right. whatever. So uh, the the feeling is that maybe the podcast listeners don't want to hear that. And so the idea that uh, that has been agreed upon by some of the the deciding factors here at Free Talk Live is that we ought to expand the Daily Digest. Our friend Riley Blake has been cutting every single day ass at it too. a roughly 30-minute summary of our two-hour-long podcast, what he considers to be the highlights uh, from it. And he's been doing this essentially as a volunteer uh, basis. He's accept- accepted donations via cryptocurrency and I think a Patreon as well. Uh, but so the idea was, well, let's have Riley roughly double the length, go to 45 minutes to an hour instead of 25 or 30 minutes. And we'll make that the podcast, basically. We'll focus on that. The full show will still be available if you're a Free Talk Live amplifier. You can still get the whole radio show without any edits, yeah. except for just cutting commercials out. Uh, and you can so do that's that. that's going to be the uh, episodes only will be the extended digest or... That'll be everything. The digest will be all that there is in the the main podcast, basically. So that's the idea. We're going to start doing that on September first. If you want to get the continue to get the full show with you know all two hours a night, then just go to amps.freetalklive.com. Of course, you can always listen live. You can always go and grab the video show archives over at video.freetalklive.com. So there's plenty of ways to get the full show. There's there's our 24/7 audio stream at listen dot freetalklive.com but the idea was like you know maybe if we make a podcast that's more palatable to what podcast listeners are kind of used to hearing yeah. maybe it'll get more shares maybe more people will listen i don't know maybe it'll fall completely on its face huh. i have no idea wait so you mean uh, somebody went out and sort of looked at what the industry standard is and decided that it was best to do uh, sort of something that falls within the parameters of best industry practices without the state telling us what to do yeah, the Internal Revenue Service was formed in 862 by President Lincoln to uh, pay for the Civil War that the Democrats started to keep slaves. And um, it was enacted at a, I think it was a 3% um, tax on anybody who made over $800 annually. The thing about mm-hmm. it is that 10 years after the IRS was put into effect to go after people for this uh, 3% federal income tax, the federal income tax was abolished by Congress, but the IRS, they, they still stuck around. Now, that always seems to be the case, you guys. When did they abolish the earlier. income tax? I don't remember hearing about that. Well, look into it, man. Ten, yeah, as far that's, as it, that's what I read. Yeah, as far I, as I, I know, the, right the IRS was uh, was created in, federal, uh, in 1913 federal income along, tax, with, uh, yeah. uh, along with uh, uh, the fiat currency system. Like okay. they created the but, but, the Fed and the IRS uh, the, the same time at the same time, yeah. Eighteen sixty-two, correct? No, uh, no nineteen thirteen. 
Ninth, the IRS was created in 1913? Yeah, pretty sure. Uh, you, pretty sure it was by the same act that uh, created the Federal that, yeah. Reserve. Now, the IRS was formed by Abraham Lincoln to collect... Um, July 1st, 1862? For the Civil huh. War. Yeah. Look it up, guys. No, I just did, John. 1862, President Lincoln signed into law a revenue-raising measure to help pay for Civil War expenses. Although Thank Wikipedia you. says the name IRS comes from 1918, so maybe they renamed it mm. okay, a little bit later. Renamed it. My my point was yeah. that 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 the um you know it never got abolished. It was put in place to collect the, you know, war tax money to pay for the war that the Democrats started to keep people right. slaves, and uh, it never got abolished. It's like you guys were saying earlier. These people that they constantly make laws. They they have people that just make laws. Do we need that many laws? No. Why is it when these laws become useless, they don't take them off the books? Huh, weird. Well, because more laws yeah. means more lawyers, and lawyers write laws to give their buddies and themselves more business, basically. So they have an interest so like in... an oligarchy, too, then. Sure, of course they are. Yeah, create a law, create a business. Well, remember the 13th, we were talking earlier about the 14th Amendment. The 13th Amendment that never was, but I believe came close, was to ban uh, people who were lawyers from government holding government positions, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly, and... That one didn't pass. Yeah, it would have uh, banned anyone with a uh, title of honor, uh, which includes yeah. Esquire, Esquire, which mm-hmm. means that we would have had a, a world where, like, instead of almost every single one of them being former lawyers, as we have it now, none of them would have been allowed to be lawyers and then politicians. You just heard highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. You can download full episodes, subscribe to our podcast. Listen live and more, all for free at freetalklive.com.